Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. If you're a pro, you know that this is not efficient because you know there's a better way. There's also a better way to save. When pro customers buy building supplies in bulk at Lowe's, they save up to 20% every day. Buy in bulk and save up to 20% on concrete, gypsum, and gypsum accessories. At Lowe's, buy more, save more. Visit the Pro Desk or Lowe'sForPros.com for details. Discount applies to contractor pack items. Minimum purchase required, U.S. only. Welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we're going to bring you the news driving the latest stories in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. So you guys have been doing a great job with your micro assignments, and we've really gotten great feedback. We've seen some real results in terms of our rankings and iTunes, and we're super thankful. It's not Thanksgiving, but we're still very thankful. So we're not going to do a new one this week. We're going to repeat the three that we've had. So they're all super easy. Each of them takes less than a minute. One is uh, writing, uh, submitting the show to earbud.fm. That's NPR's curating platform. Uh, writing a quick review on Stitcher or iTunes and tweeting out a link. So it must, should have really a link with a recommendation to the show because people hear about podcasts through word of mouth. If you're new to podcasts, you just see a billion shows out there. You don't know how to pick them. So it's up to you guys to spread the word. Um, so we really appreciate all the feedback. And for folks that aren't on Twitter, you know, we have a Facebook page too. So you could invite friends to like us on Facebook or post a link to the show on Facebook. So right. you know, we'll take any social media. That's right. That's right. What are this week's top lines, Kristen? This week's top lines. Uh, if you need a post-turkey detox, you are not alone. And um, we'll look at some polling about people and how they feel about their weight this holiday season. Uh, also, it was a happy Trumpsgiving. Um, is it time for Republicans to really start to freak out? Uh, we will feel the burn with Bernie Sanders pollster Ben Tolchin um, to hear his take on the Democratic side of the primary. Uh, maybe you're listening to this on a smartphone, maybe on a laptop, maybe on a tablet. Um, We'll take a look at polling to show who tends to own these devices. And spoiler alert, it's not actually millennials who tend to own all three. And then while I was out hunting deals on Black Friday this past weekend, um, we took a look at some polls on how Americans feel about hunting in general not just hunting for good deals. Um, we'll talk about how Americans feel about hunting for sport and big game hunting. So before we go into 2016, we have a new big number of the week. So in Thanksgiving's aftermath, 41% of Americans say they want to lose weight, which may sound like a lot, but it's actually a new low in the 25 years Gallup's been asking this. So that's good news, I guess, unless everybody's just throwing up their hands. I, I don't know, but there it has been a lot of data in the last few weeks about how um, there's obesity rates are, are dropping, diabetes rates are dropping. So this all seems to go hand in hand with that. It sure does. I, I am, I was surprised to see that you actually have 9% of Americans who say they want to put on weight. 
you don't actually hear that much about that out there in the world. Where yeah. people, you know, you don't hear too many people saying they're like looking forward to putting on weight unless they're thinking about it as I want to put on muscle mass. Right. Which this question does not specify do you want to put on 20 pounds of fat or do you want to put on 20 pounds of muscle? There's always somebody to answer something. And that nine is actually higher than than a lot of previous years. But the 49 is a pretty big drop. Usually it's in the 50s to 60s over the last few years. So Yeah, this is the low. Way to go, America. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is just body image acceptance. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so turning to the Republican side of the aisle, um, I, I, I want to introduce a, a – Poll finding, um, courtesy my firm, Echelon Insights. I think we put a whole $40 into Google Consumer Surveys the other day. Uh, and Patrick, uh, my partner in crime over at Echelon, he asked this question, which we hesitated to release publicly on the grounds that it's super creepy. <laughs> but he just was kind of curious. So he put out a survey where it said we asked 500 just adults in America. So it's not registered voters. It's just adults. Uh, outside of this survey, which presidential candidates have you had any thoughts about in the last day? Doesn't specify what, what kind of thoughts. Right. Does not get that specific. Right. Just who's on your mind? Who you've been thinking about? Guess Trump. what the answer is? Trump, Trump, Trump. <laughs> He's everywhere. Well, the answer, the real winner is none of the above. Like, what? No. <laughs> <laughs> I have not thought about any of these people in the last day. Who? <laughs> so in our poll, we found that uh, 48.6% of Americans do not spend their day thinking about the presidential candidates, that um, almost half of our sample said that they had not thought of anyone. Uh, 28% said they had thought of Donald Trump. 19.2% said they thought of Hillary Clinton. 11.2% said Ted Cruz. 10.6% said Marco Rubio. 8% said Jeb Bush. Uh, about 5.5% for Chris Christie. Uh, so I think you could choose multiple answers, um, but certainly you have – Trump is on the minds of more people than any of these other candidates. Hmm. And were those – was that an open end? Like I'm asking like that. Was that an open end or was, those the, was that the list? The no, Sanders I wasn't think on the that list. was the list. I know, which flawed, flawed methodology. No, that's okay. Well, this was – part of the problem with these Google consumer surveys that we talked about before is that they're like – they're great for fast, cheap data, but you can right. only have seven answer options. Right, right, right. Um, so we put most of the Republicans on here. Yeah. Hey, no, that's fair enough. But, hey, half of Americans, they don't spend their day thinking about this. Good for you. Way God to go, bless America. Them. God bless them. So I'm is, not dieting and I'm not thinking about those candidates. <laughs> Get it. We at the pollsters have our finger on the pulse of America. I'm getting fat and I'm sick of this presidential election. I feel you. Um, so is Donald Trump stalling? Uh, so there's been a little bit of polling that's come out recently. Margie, what are people seeing? I mean, you know, it, there's a lot of commotion over a couple things. One, there's a Quinnipiac poll that came out today. Today's Wednesday. came out this morning. Every time I walk by the TVs, all TVs are blaring it. Um, that show that Carson has dropped. So that's big news. He's had a tough couple weeks. He did an impromptu trip to Jordan to demonstrate that he has foreign policy chops. I don't think he's been successful in that regard. He's been inconsistent in how he talks about foreign policy. Trump has been bouncing around over the last few weeks, but he's still up there. And I think he's rebounded in the last little bit. I mean, that's what the Huffington Post pollster trend shows. Uh, Reuters showed him slipping in favorability. So there was news over that over the holiday weekend. But I think people were just excited about that thought. You know, the press has been trying to dance on his grave over and over again. So, you know, you see that just continuing to happen. Um, and then there's this discussion over 
what kind of polling works best to measure the Republican side. So Harry Anton at 538 wrote something about this, but other people have been writing about this. Huffington Post wrote about this a couple months ago. I think others did too, that in online polls and IVR polls, Trump does better than in landline polls. So that's part of what's going on is the type of methodology um, of the various polls. Um, and Trump himself is confused by all the polling and even tweeted out or, or maybe he said in a news report, how come a poll of 300 interviews is not as good as one of 20,000? So we would love to have you on the show to discuss Donald Trump. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't read his Twitter feed. Is that possible? I don't know. I think that he reads it. Yeah. Justin Bieber did an RT. I think it's the most. Trumps didn't respond. One of these days. One of these days we're going to get somebody big. I know. It's going to happen. Yeah. This I, I'm fascinated by all of this sort of study of what, what type of methodology Trump performs best in. And I mean, the the real kind of through line is Trump does best in polls where you don't have to tell another human being you're voting for Trump. Right. And what? So let's extend. But also with vote history. But also if you have vote history, like you would in a landline phone in a state as opposed to a national poll. There's right. that too. So it's it's the the method, and then different methods allow for different samples. Um, what is interesting to me, and sort of I haven't heard a lot of discussion about this, but like let's say you've got something like the Iowa caucuses, which I I believe the way the Iowa caucuses work is you go and you sit in a room and you talk to people about who you support. Right. So it's a public act where in New Hampshire, if you vote in the primary, you go into a voting booth and you vote for a candidate and then you walk out of the voting booth. And nobody knows who you voted for. Right. Does it make sense if you're a campaign pollster to try to use a methodology that best reflects the actual – I mean 99 percent of the time in American politics, it's secret ballot. But does it make sense in something like the Iowa caucuses to really insist on having a methodology where you have to tell – Someone who you're supporting or am I just – that's like way too down in the weeds. No. I I mean I think that's part of having a question in there and and – you know, Chuck Todd spoke about this when we interviewed him. And if you haven't listened to that episode, you should. Oh, my it was gosh. Awesome. He was so good. <laughs> he was really – he was really – he didn't mince any words. He was really great. But, um, it, you know, would you support? Would you consider supporting that person? And that was as important or not more important to him than the actual head-to-head. Um, and Seltzer, who we've had on the show before, she also spoke about, you know, who would you never vote for? Your first and your second and your never, never would vote. And how all of that – shows some openness to other candidates or lack of openness. And and also uh, Neil Newhouse, I think, spoke of this too, like how many people have said, I've made up my mind versus I could still consider somebody else. So I think that's how pollsters are trying to account for the fact that you know, you don't – people don't really know. You still have a majority of voters saying, I don't – I haven't made up my mind yet yeah. for sure. Looking at this Huffington Post pollster trend line though, it's – it is very funny to me to look at the fate of each candidate based on when Donald Trump starts going after them. Yeah. Like he starts going after Jeb Bush and it's just like lights out for Jeb. And he starts going after Ben Carson and that line just like, phew, he's like – I mean, it's it's ugly. And so one wonders, like, who's next? I mean, I think he's been picking on Chris Christie lately. Yeah. Haven't he and Christie been having beef? Yes. And um, then oh, Carly Fiorina was the other one. Carly Fiorina. Although she, she benefited at first benefited. from Punch and Trump because she was good at it. 
um, but it has not been sustained. But then you're going to see Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz will, you know, does not criticize Trump nope. at all. His advice, I mean, Kellyanne Conway, who we've had on the show um, as a guest co-host, and I've seen her subsequently, it works on the Cruz Super PAC, and she doesn't criticize Trump either. I mean, I think that's, it, it seems like that's part of a strategy. So then, you know, voter Trump voters can perhaps go to Cruz. They must see, like, our voters are somewhat similar in some way. So we're, we're not going to criticize Huckabee, too. You've seen him not, you know, shy away from criticizing Trump in the debate. So, But what's crazy is why do they think that Donald Trump is going to drop out? It's December, Margie. We, we've been talking about the Trump bump for months, but always I have – I admit I have always been of the mind like, well, you know, it's Labor Day. By the time we get to the caucuses, it'll – and like, nope. Christmas is around the corner. Like we, this primary season is on our doorstep, and Donald Trump is leaving the whole rest of the field in the dust. Yeah, yeah, and you know, you now see a lot of people now talking about Cruz and Rubio. Is one of them going to be the the non-Trump candidate? And for a lot of Republican establishment, Cruz is not is not who they want because he the idea that Ted Cruz would be the Republican establishment's (laughs) candidate in this election is like mind blowing. Right. And Republicans seem to dislike him more as much, if not more than Democrats do. And Rubio, you know, is clearly now emerging as as perhaps establishment candidate. And Alex Castellanos is one of the founding partners here at Purple wrote on his Facebook page and he said, Republicans only, please. Cruz or Trump. And everyone went bananas. And then (laughs) I saw that this morning. <laughs> I wanted to add up and like talk on the show about what I, I think somebody did add up. I'm sure there's like a hundred more responses since then. And Maria Cardona, my style icon, who was also a Facebook <laughs> friend of every I guess all of us wrote either please. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet. I'll bet. Not following instructions, but funny nonetheless. So we're really excited to have Ben Tolchin from Tolchin Research uh, on the phone with us today. He is the Sanders campaign pollster. And in terms of disclosure, I've known Ben. I mean, how long have we known each other? About 20 years or so, 25 years? I think we just crossed paths at the Melman Group. And as I've disclosed on the show before, my husband, Julian, is on the Sanders campaign team. So with all those disclosures, thank you so much, Ben, for joining us today. Yeah, it's great to be here. So, Ben, I, my first question is, what has the media been getting wrong about the Democratic primary and the state of the race? Well, it's interesting that, you know, it's kind of classic Washington, D.C., inside the Beltway narrative that doesn't really fly with the reality of the race. I mean, they've, uh, you know, the month of October, for example, they declared, you know, that is Hillary's best month ever. Um, but if you actually looked at the polling over the course of the month of October, Bernie, you know, actually made up ground and closed the gap with Hillary nationally and in key states. Yeah, when I take a look at the uh, the like the, just the Huffington Post pollster average, we talked about on the show last week how, you know, a lot of these headlines were saying, oh, it's a big Hillary Clinton has rebounded. But in many ways, it was just sort of absorbing some of the fall off that had happened around the buzz of is Joe Biden going to run and that actually she's basically just back to where she was before while Bernie Sanders numbers have continued to go up. There hasn't been a a plateau or or a decline that that her increase has not come at the expense of Bernie Sanders share of the Democratic primary vote. 
Well, that's true. But also in there are a series of public polls that show in a head to head that Bernie's made ground, made up ground consistently over the last few months, including September, October and November. So he's actually been gaining ground and Hillary's been losing support over the fall when everyone said she's been doing so well. So it's actually um, I mean, the reality is with Biden in the race, a lot of polls were not testing the head to head. But as the race now is what it is in terms of who's running, it's clear who's running. I mean, the race is distilling now, but but Bernie's making up ground. And, and the, the thing you have to remember is that Hillary's been in the public eye for 25 years, right, at least. And Bernie basically just showed up six months ago. I mean, voters only started to get to know him six months ago as a candidate for president. And over that time, he's gone from you know limited name ID to becoming much better known. And, you know, he's running neck and neck, if not ahead of New Hampshire. He's competitive in Iowa and, and some other early states. And that's really where he's spending a lot of his time campaigning and voters are getting to know him even better. Yeah. I mean, well, let's talk about that because obviously people spend a lot of time looking at the horse race. There's so much more going on in a, in a campaign than just what the horse race numbers say. What else should people be looking at, whether it's favorability or traits or who people think is going to win, who's looking good in the general? I mean, what else should we be looking at? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there are a few key things that, that the, you know, insiders and, and we look at from the campaign's perspective. I mean, one is, I mean, look, this is not really a national campaign. We're not campaigning in all 50 states. It really is a battle about a few key early states. And of course, that's Iowa and New Hampshire above everything else. So, I mean, that's the really the, the main thing to look at is how, you know, how's Bernie doing in Iowa and New Hampshire? And it's, 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 it's the head to head. It's the horse race. It's just the favorables. I and mean, if you look at his favorables, he's doing as well, if not better than Hillary and his favorability ratings in those early states and, and in other key states. So that's a big thing. The other thing we're looking at, um, which, you know, there's a broader narrative inside the Beltway about, oh, you know, Hillary's a better general election candidate. But the polling data completely goes against that narrative. Uh, there is just in every poll, national and statewide, Bernie is doing as well, if not better than Hillary, in almost every single matchup against a Republican. And it's because he is does much better than she does with independents. And he does better with Republicans, believe it or not, because the reality is she's such a polarizing figure. She's seen as such a partisan lightning rod for so long that she gets very few Republican votes. And Bernie gets some Republican votes, not a lot, granted, but some. And but but he does much, much better with independents. I mean, she, Hillary's losing by 20 points in some of these polls among independents. Bernie's winning with independents. So there's a huge difference among the two candidates, um, among independents. And as a result, uh, Bernie does better than Hillary does in head-to-head matchups with Republicans. And he doesn't do as well as she does with Democrats. So we think there's room for him to grow uh, that that margin further. So I think that's something that you know, I look at all the data and then I listen to the nar- the media narrative about, oh, Hillary's a better general election candidate than, than, than Bernie. And it's like, well, the data doesn't back that narrative up. So, you know, our goal from the campaign's perspective is to try to talk to the media and say, look, here's the, what the data shows and, and get the word out so that they can read the polls correctly. Why do you think that is? Do you think they are just not looking carefully enough? Do you think that they just don't have the bandwidth to cover all the candidates with the depth they want to. I mean, what do you think it is? 
Well, when you are an establishment frontrunner like Hillary and you have a lot of folks in the media establishment who were part of your administration, you have a big influence over creating that narrative, right? So I think that's a big part of it. I think it's perception. And Bernie's always been seen as, you know, kind of an outsider. He's an insurgent type of candidate. Uh, and with that comes you have to kind of earn your respect, you know, step by step. And and that I think that I view it as that 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 just the media within the inside the beltway falls victim to the Clinton media narrative. Right. Um, one of the questions I wanted to ask is based on there was a, a memo that you put out in November, sort of taking the media to task for um, the headlines that, as you mentioned, you know, were saying, oh, Hillary Clinton is resurgent when really the story may have been a little more complicated. Um, and, and in that memo, you note that within your uh, the CBS New York Times polling among Democratic voters, um, income inequality is the most, they name that as the most important economic problem facing the country. Um, the idea being that, you know, even if Bernie Sanders is not ahead in the horse race polling, he's kind of setting the standard for what Democratic voters care about and want to hear about. I mean, what I, I know, you know, as the pollster, sometimes you get to play a role in shaping the message and the narrative. And uh, it seems like from an outsider perspective, Bernie Sanders kind of does what Bernie Sanders wants to do. But I mean, what have you been seeing in the data that sort of suggests how voters are reacting to a message that's really focused on kind of income inequality as the main economic problem? Yeah, I mean, it's been phenomenal how Bernie has been driving that message, right? And, you know, the fact is that public polling shows that what's the, the biggest economic concern and the fact that Democratic primary voters choose income inequality, that's not a random event. That's not a random occurrence. That is a directly as a result of a candidate for president who voters are paying attention to has a very clear, concise and coherent message on that topic. And so, uh, you know, that's, and that's why he's doing so well. He has tapped into something that, um, you, you know, an issue income inequality that the voters have felt right. And I'm sure, you know, pollsters all over the country have seen this emerge in their research, right. Where, where voters are very concerned about the gap between the rich and the poor and the disappearing middle class. There's a rich, you know, an increasing wealthy class and an increasing, you know, lower class and a disappearing middle class. And, and Bernie has effectively tapped into that uh, concern. And look, I mean, Senator Elizabeth Warren has had great success talking about that as well. So, uh, you know, he's not the only person out there who's talking about that, but he's the only one running for president. And, you know, Hillary has sort of talked about it, but not with the same force or conviction. And, you know, I think that really explains a lot why I mean, voters are listening to his message, they're responding to his message. And they're responding to his candidacy as a result of, of his very powerful uh, message that taps into something real that's going on with, with, with voters across the political spectrum, but particularly in the Democratic primary. There was something in the memo that I did want to either challenge you on a little bit or at least sort of hear your hear your thoughts on it. Um, and this was the question about would you be more or less likely to vote for someone um, if they were supported by a super PAC? Um, and the, the findings in the New York Times CBS News poll were that, you know, 4 percent said it would make them more likely, but 36 percent of Democratic primary voters said they'd be less likely to back a candidate who's supported by a super PAC. 
Now, I always, when I see questions like that, I always wonder, like, what's the intensity level there? I mean, because technically I would be less likely to vote for someone who's a huge Florida State football fan, but that's not really going to drive my vote in the same way that if somebody said, oh, I want to raise income taxes to 90 percent, like then that would make me very less likely to vote for someone. So, I mean, what are you finding in terms of the intensity there around the campaign finance issue and sort of Clinton's vulnerability on taking a lot of donations from either very wealthy individuals or being backed by a super PAC? Yeah, I, I think that part of Bernie's message, I mean, if you look at uh, the TV ads he's running right now in Iowa, New Hampshire, for example. One of the ads talks about how the economy's rigged in part because you have corporate special interests give money to politicians who then, you know, pursue the, 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 their agenda, not the, the, the agenda of, of middle class families, right? And I think the sense that the Washington, D.C. is fundamentally broken and, and quite frankly corrupt, that, that special interests dominate Washington. They own the politicians. That's a sentiment that, that, you know, voters have been sharing, you know, with us and with pollsters around the country for the last few years. And super PACs are just an embodiment of that, um, you know, of that, 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 that the effect that special interests have. And it's just taken it to another level, right? At Post Citizens United, you can have a billionaire basically single-handedly back a politician, right? And voters see that and say, of course, that politician is going to owe that person everything when they get elected. And so that is where, I mean, the New York Times uh, CBS poll question that we put out there was a way to describe what we're seeing more broadly as a what voters see as a corrupt political system. And Bernie, quite frankly, is taking on that system. His campaign's funded by small dollar contributions by average people, not by big dollar, you know, big donors. He doesn't have a super PAC. So it's at that juxtaposition with Hillary and, and quite frankly, the Republican field that allows him to stand out. So so I think it's not just that answer that one question. I mean, we see data uh, throughout, you know, our research in public polling that that really um, highlights the fact that voters are really fed up with how political systems work because they see a, a di- completely dysfunctional Washington and they, and, and they, they get why that's the case that special interests, you know, are driving the process in Washington and they don't have, you know, politicians don't have voters interests at heart. And, and Bernie's tapped into that uh, frustration with Washington on the democratic side of the aisle and the democratic primary with this message. So uh, I want to raise three other potential liabilities, right? So let's say we all stipulate, you know, people are, are concerned about income inequality. They're concerned about uh, money and politics. But three m- potential demographic challenges. One is um, ha- women voters. They're a disproportionate percentage of the Democratic primary. They're a majority of the electorate overall. Doesn't Clinton have a, uh, an advantage with women? Um, the some of the disadvantages Sanders has had with African Americans, um, and their role in turnout in general, and their role, uh, the role of that group in South Carolina and other early voting states, and then the third, I guess, is not demographic per se, but the label of of socialist that people tell pollsters like Gallup that they're, you know, they have some reluctance to supporting a, a socialist. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, to kind of answer your questions in, in order, I mean, I think the you know there's a the gender gap isn't as profound as the generational gap in this race. Um, if you look at, you know, public polling, I mean, Bernie does extremely well with voters under 50 and particularly voters under 40 and particularly voters under 30. And Hillary does better with voters over 50 and particularly seniors. 
And so it becomes a battle of turnout and whether, you know, Bernie's campaign can, you know, he's clearly galvanized younger voters. They're fired up over uh, his campaign, his candidacy, and they're giving money to him and showing volunteering. Uh, so the question is, can he run up the score with those voters and get enough of them to, to, to show up and vote? And we're seeing that younger women in particular are, are very supportive of Bernie. And, and there's that's why there's a generational gap. Uh, you know, younger women were seeing much more responsive to Bernie than to Hillary. I mean, they say, well, yeah, I'd like to see the first female president elected, but I want to be the right one. and I want to be someone who I really like. And, and they have more mixed feelings about Hillary. So so that's really the challenge for the campaign is can we you know, make inroads with voters over 50 and over you know, seniors? And then uh, can we you know, really um, boost turnout enough with with younger voters to, to make up that difference? And then in terms of, um, uh, uh, you know, African-Americans, I mean, look, he's, he's making progress, making effort with that. But but, you know, and, and, and that's going to be an ongoing challenge for the campaign. But remember, you know, Barack Obama was losing to Hillary Clinton badly among African-Americans until he won Iowa. And then, you know, black voters realized, oh, this, 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 he could win. I mean, he, he could actually do this. And then public opinion changed dramatically. So in our view, I mean, look, if, if Bernie can win one of the two early, early states, New Hampshire, you know, his best, best position to win New Hampshire, that can fundamentally change the dialogue and change how people view him as a candidate and, you know, start changing the equation. So, uh, but look, he's making an effort and, you know, it takes, uh, you know, time. I mean, the reality is, again, Hillary's been known to voters for 25 years and, and, and you know, African-American voters are just getting to know Bernie over the last few months. And so he's got 25 years to make up here in the next few months, but he's been making progress. A lot of public polling has him improving gradually with African-Americans. And I think, you know, if he makes a concerted effort, uh, you know, I think he can make progress, make up some ground and, and put states like South Carolina in play. I mean, does he win all those Southern states? Most likely not, but can he compete and make Hillary spend a lot of money in Southern states? Uh, You know, she's talked about the South being her firewall. Well, why do you have a firewall? Because you need a firewall, right? And if, if if she has to spend a lot of money to kind of win the Southern states that she absolutely has to win to win the nomination, well, you know, Bernie can make her spend money there. And then he's raising, you know, a lot of money these days on small dollar contributions and can compete in other states and win other states and the rest of the country. Uh, that's going to be significant progress. Yeah. And then what about, what are your thoughts on socialism? I mean, have you seen anything on the, on views towards socialism in response to the Georgetown speech from a couple of weeks ago? I mean, every time I'm basically on any panel with any Republican, aside from Kristen, somehow the word socialism comes up from the Republican. It doesn't matter what the question is. Well, I'll have to start putting it in my repertoire. <laughs> I'm letting my side down. <laughs> they, they just bring it up no matter what we're, you know, what we're talking about. So, you know, I think there are a lot of Republicans chomping at the bit to use that against Democrats, no matter what, what happens. Yeah. I mean, that goes into the generational divide. I mean, we're seeing, you know, public polling has shown that voters under 50 um, have, as positive feelings about socialism as they do about capitalism, right? I mean, if you think about what's happened to uh, millennials and, and, and Gen Xers, I mean, I mean, the, the benefits of capitalism have not been as great as advertised, right? Whereas uh, the idea of socialism getting, you know, help, you know, your student loans help pay for reducing the debt on student loans, helping pay for healthcare. I mean, things that 
that voters under 40 really struggling with, that sounds a lot more enticing than uh, getting laid off after a great recession because of uh, the, the great cap system of capitalism we have. And Wall Street crashed the economy and people were laid off for an extended period of time. So uh, there's a huge generational divide on that issue and that perception. And, uh, you know, voters who lived through the Cold War have a better sense of what socialism is and may have a more mixed feelings about it. But uh, you know, older Democrats, you know, if you talk about in the language of in the tradition of great Democrats like FDR, uh, you know, Medicare and Social Security are, you know, programs that want to help everybody. Uh, there's a lot of public support for, for that outside the Democratic primary. So, you know, it, it, it'll be more of a generational battle. And I mean, but our fight right now is within the Democratic primary. And that's our, our, our main focus. And being a quote unquote democratic socialist within the Democratic Party uh, is actually a net positive. Um, and there are a lot of things that Bernie can say that can win over voters, both young and old, because older older uh, Democrats, they like the idea of an FDR-type model of Medicare and Social Security. And, and I think uh, you know that's something that Bernie can emphasize with, with, with a lot of um, credibility. So I, another question I've got as somebody who has done some work in the campaign space is, you know, a lot of politicians nowadays really love to say how much they hate polling, except for Donald Trump. Donald Trump both hates and loves polling. But most of them say, I don't listen to polls. I don't let polls tell me what to do. Um, I was laughing because back a couple of months ago, a Republican, when announcing for president, gave a speech where he said, I never listen to focus groups. And I'm thinking, I've definitely moderated focus groups for this person before, um, not for their presidential campaign. It was it was longer ago. But, you know, pollsters, we, we sometimes get a we, we get the short end of the stick. We get a lot of tough rhetoric thrown our way from candidates who want to say we don't listen to polls. You work for one of those candidates who says I don't listen to polls. Tell us a little bit about what it's like sort of playing the role of pollster for someone who is certainly his own man. I mean, it's definitely uh, a different experience. I can say that, I, you know, but I think that even for any candidate who says they don't like polling or don't, you know, believe in polling to, su to, to such an extent, uh, obviously there's a role for a pollster. I mean, the memo that we put out kind of describing what the landscape for public polling, um, you know, obviously, you know, the candidate himself isn't going to write that memo, right? So the media consultant. Unless it's Donald Trump. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> And you never but, but know. Then, but, but then he does it on Twitter, right? And 140 <laughs> character on Twitter. But, but you know, a multi-page analysis of the public poll is showing Bernie making progress the last few months, uh, you know, with all due respect to to, to media Bernie's media consultants, uh, you know, Margie's husband's one of them, you know, they're not as well equipped to do that. So there is a role for a pollster in that context. And, um, you know, I'm not in a position to, you know, um, discuss too much internal dynamics of the campaign, but, but you could see, you know, the role of a pollster in that context of, Hey, you know, I could talk to the media like you all and say, look, this is our perspective. This is the campaign's perspective from a pollster's perspective. Um, with some more credibility than uh, the candidate himself or the media consultant. So and then that level, uh, you know, I think I can make a contribution that even the candidate can appreciate. Well, whenever we get a pollster on the show, we always like to ask the question about sort of how you wound up in this business in the first place. Walk us through kind of how how did you get from point A to point B to where you are now the pollster for this uh, sort of major presidential candidate? Yeah, so it, uh, it, you know, I interned for uh, Stan Greenberg in 1992, the summer of 1992. I, I was, my parents 
Uh, we're living in Washington, D.C. I needed a paid summer internship. I applied at Greenberg Lake at the time. Stan was partners with Celinda Lake. And uh, they, you know, they hired me. And I, I was one of the few people, apparently, that um, – and this is how I know Margie, uh, Pam Hillman, a blast from the past, Margie, uh, hired me because I actually called and followed up a few times. said, oh, you're the only intern candidate who actually pursued it. But they were they were willing to pay – uh, uh, a minimum wage. I think it was like four fifty or five dollars an you're hour. Like, you're the only one willing to pay their interns. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. As opposed to a free internship in DC, I needed to make some money. And then I got there in June, and Clinton was in third place. And I left in August, and he was in first place. So it's really the unwritten history of the Clinton campaign. It's why Hillary is where she is today, thanks to me being an intern for 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 Stan Greenberg when he <laughs> was doing Bill Clinton's polling. But it was it was a fascinating time to. And I was an undergraduate liberal arts degree history major. And, you know, polling is all of us who are pollsters. I mean, what's so fascinating about it is it's a left brain, right brain, you know, profession, right? You have to be good with data, but you also have to, you know, be able to write and tell a narrative. And, um, you know, my, my parents were academics. My dad was a professor. Mom was a teacher. And so I, I, I knew I needed some job that required some intellectual stimulation, but I didn't want to be a professor. Uh, and then I got out of college and I did, I did other things, you know, experimented with, you know, working at a law firm and things like that. Worked at a media firm, actually wrote some 30 second ads, uh, but I just preferred polling. And I got out of college and kept in touch with the polling folks at, at, uh, and people in the polling world. And it's such a small profession, as you all know, that, you know, and I had a little bit of experience on my resume, which made me eminently qualified to, you know, photocopy cross tabs. I think that's what I used to do, right? Yes. I mean, I like banner books, spend hours in the Xerox machine. So luckily, I don't have to do that anymore. But and then, you know, one thing led to another. I was in it. I was in D.C. Then I moved out to California because I was in D.C. right out of college. And after a few years, everybody I knew left town. So I was like, well, why start over? So I went to California, worked at a California-based firm, and. Uh, the next thing you know, and I have my own firm, and here I am, Bernie Sanders pollster, right? But uh, uh, but what helped me was I, I did polling for Howard Dean, and I think that um, you know having experience of going through a presidential campaign before A and B, an insurgent campaign, right? Where you know I willing to work for Bernie. Look, I, I first approached Bernie's team a year ago, and he had, was talking about running. I guarantee you, no, not a lot of people were lining up, knocking on his door, going, I really want to work for Bernie Sanders to take on the behemoth Hillary Clinton. But uh, I just saw I saw he had an opportunity. His message was right for the time. I knew, obviously, Julian and Tad Devine and Mark Longabaugh. Uh, and so I reached out to them. And, and yeah, they, the fact that I worked for Dean, that I've got a relationship with them, uh, it kind of presented an opportunity. But I, I just saw that he had potential and look, I mean, he's probably surpassed everyone's expectations of how he's done. Um, but just to have the opportunity to work on a campaign like that, I think not being in DC helps quite frankly, because, you know, I wasn't, you know, people in DC are like, well, you're going to take on the Hillary Clinton machine. It's like, well, I mean, I'm not part of the machine, right? So it's not really a downside for me. Uh, but no, I mean, look, Bernie's got a very powerful message and, uh, it, it's really tapping into something big. You can see the progress of his campaign and, you know, how far it goes. We'll find out soon enough. But uh, so far, it's been a lot of fun and, and exciting. And hopefully, you know, I can help, you know, keep helping him make a difference. 
Well, great. Well, thanks so much. And, you know, for, for whatever it's worth, um, Sanders is top of the time online poll for person of the year, beating Malala and Pope Francis and Adele. So that's I think those are some. Oh, great. as we talked about last week on the show, I think Adele has the best shot. Her fave on fave is amazing. <laughs> well, you I should you should hear Bernie sing. It's it, 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 it will put Adele to shame. Oh, sign me up! Sign me up! Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate. It. How can people find you on Twitter? How can people find the memo, the public memo that you put out? Yeah, I mean, you can check out our, our Facebook or website, TulchinResearch.com, or we're on Facebook, Tulchin Research, or Twitter at Tulchin Research. So, uh, and then our memo is also on the Bernie Sanders website. So you should be able to find us. There are not too many Tulchin Researches out there. So if you just Google us, we should show up. Excellent. Okay. Thank you, Ben. Thanks. All right. Thank Take you. Care. Okay. Bye. That was Ben Tolchin of Tolchin Research. Margie, I'm so glad he was able to join us. It was, I, I love hearing from people who are like, working on a campaign or working with a super PAC right now, because they have such a different perspective than, you know, if you're just doing the public or the media polling, like they're seeing stuff right. that we're not allowed to see. And right. just like, oh, I would love to see your internal cross tabs. That's right. That's uh, right. And s- it's good to, you know, it's good to get a sense of how, how is the press potentially missing a story about what's going on in the polling? Yeah. We try to be the, the sort of honest brokers here, but you know, it's, it's, it's good to have, Someone else come in with kind of a very different perspective and, and push back against those headlines. One quick note on Adele, by the way. Since we <laughs> taped the last show, every time I listen to her song, it's, it's like it's all about calling someone on the phone. Right. I can't not think up like alternate weird polling lyrics. That's good. Like one of the lyrics is like, I must have called a thousand times. Somebody Which tweeted back what? at me like, her response rate is terrible. <laughs> her response rate is industry average. <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> she needs the same number of phone numbers. So as maybe the if rest I'm bored us. one day, I'll just write a total parody of the song with polling nerd lyrics. That'd be good. You should, you know. But I gotta jump on it, or there's gonna be some other song that'll come out. And... Yeah, yeah, send it to Funny or Die or something. <laughs> it That's... may just be funny to me, though. That's the problem. Maybe funny to me, die to everyone else. Um, so we have a new segment. We've been doing it quite a bit, but now we're going to give it a name, and that is Ask a Millennial. And we happen to have one here, and that's Kristen, our resident millennial and millennial expert, since she literally wrote the book on millennials. The selfie vote makes a great stocking stuffer. That's right. That's right. So um, now – like, so people think that millennials are just connected all the time. They're always on their machines, their phone, and their this and their that, their tablet. So how many millennials have both, or have all three, smartphone, tablet, and a laptop? And surely they're more connected than everybody else. The thing to remember is that millennials are broke. Mm. They are broke. <laughs> they have student loans to pay. They've got rent to pay. They've got part-time jobs that don't pay that much. They don't have money for a million cool Apple gadgets. Maybe the people who live in a place like Washington, D.C. do. But according to some polling conducted by the Pew Research Center, uh, roughly one in three Americans overall own all three, smartphone, computer, and tablet. Uh, No gender divide on the issue, but the generation divide is interesting. So millennials, 41%, say they own all three. It's folks 30 to 49, which is kind of a weird group. It's like the latter, the back half of the millennials and then the Gen Xers. That's all right. I'll take I'll take it. So I'm I'm actually in your age group. We are in the same crosstab on this one, Margie. All right. Um, We are the most we are the most likely to have a majority of people in that 30 to 49 bucket 
own all three, a smartphone, a computer, and a tablet. And then there's a pretty big drop-off. For folks, once you get over 50, it falls to 27%. And for folks 65 and up, it's only 16% own all three. So if you take a look at questions like this, normally when you ask a question like, how connected are you? Or do you have this tech thing? It's always the youngest people that say they're the most plugged in. Um But also remember, this is a socioeconomic thing. Tablets and smartphones and laptops are expensive. Uh, And so, yeah, so it it didn't totally surprise me. I wonder if within that 30 to 49 bracket, like if you drew a line down the middle of that, if there'd be a difference. There is a huge income break on this, that if you make less than 30K – it's only 18% have all of those devices. Meanwhile, it's 60% for people whose household income is 75K or more. So this is whether you own all of these gadgets is as much about if you can afford all of these gadgets as it is about what generation you're from. Right, right. And 36% have all three. I mean, that seems like a pretty high number. It's probably lower than some people assume because if you don't get out of your world and you don't look at a lot of polling, you just think everybody has all this stuff. So 36% to me sounds right, but I'm sure there are a lot of folk marketers who think that that somehow seems low. Uh, You know, I actually don't think I fall – well, my husband is an Apple fanboy geek and this and Apple is the black hole where all of his money goes. Right. So he owns all three, but I don't actually have an iPad. Hmm. I used to have one back at my old job, but it was like the company iPad, and I never got one when I left. Yeah. So no. I ask a millennial, I don't even have all three. <laughs> the new iPads are pretty though. Yeah, I won't I won't tell you how many of those kinds of iPad <laughs> iPad things we have in our house or how many Lucy has. We'll just we'll just I have unfortunately swiped my husband's laptop by accident. Um so he works in, in he's a programmer. Uh and we both have the same looking laptop. And one day I grabbed a laptop and got on a train to go to meetings in New York and somewhere around Wilmington I started getting text messages like um we have a problem. <laughs> you have my computer. And because he's a developer like he has his whole development environment like all of this stuff installed in his machine. I'm like you can just open mine and use Word. Like can you use R and SPSS today? Like will that help you in your job? He's like no. <laughs> so uh, this is my my that my big gadget problem is I need to finally just start putting stickers on my computer so I don't swipe the wrong things. Yes, that's true. Not many problems that can't be solved with a few well placed stickers. Yes. Um, so uh, wrapping up here with some up to the minute polling from Maris. It seems like a little. I mean, this was big in the news. This big game hunting thing. There was a dentist, I guess, from Minnesota who um, killed a lion. Cecil the lion. Cecil the lion. Was it in Zimbabwe? I think. And so Maris just released a poll. Although this story is a few months old, um, and it was one of those stories where something happened, it went viral, everyone went crazy, and so you know, everyone in the guy's family, his patients, everybody just sort of got swept up in some viral worldwide internet insanity, which, you know, you can argue whether or not that was appropriate. But there's now polling to show that people pretty consistently agree with, I guess, the outrage that there shouldn't be game, big game hunting. 56% opposes hunting, I guess, any animal for sport. And most Americans, 86% consider big game hunting to be especially distasteful and about Two-thirds say it should be legally banned. Even about a third of hunters say big game hunting should be legally banned. I mean, I found these numbers pretty surprising, I guess. I mean, I I would not have thought 
a third of hunters would have thought that. I would have thought you'd have more ambivalence toward this issue. I'm frankly a little surprised by some of these numbers. Did the poll define big game? Because I think that's that's really important. Like if you if there's an animal that's a big trophy animal, part of the assumption there is that it's endangered, that it's very rare. And so what makes that more distasteful than like I'm going to go out and shoot a turkey is that you could you are depleting an animal that there's just not that many of them left. Right. Um, so that you know that there's that's why there's this big gap between the percentage who say they're just opposed to hunting for sport in general, and then there's huge increase when you narrow it down to just big game hunting. Yes, and I think you know some of these animals are endangered, some aren't. There's also arguments. I mean, there are people on all sides of this issue about whether you are helping the population. You know, in some cases, when they auction off, when these countries auction off a, um, a permit to do this hunting, you can only shoot, you can only hunt an animal that can no longer breed. So you're not, you know, sort of affecting the the yeah. population in the same way as you would if you, you know, went after somebody who was, you know, an animal that was a little bit younger and more in the, ready to be in the gene pool, as it were. So yeah. anyway, it's more complicated than this, obviously, than the poll show. But perhaps there is some, you know, some way we can come to consensus about this issue, surprisingly. Um and you do see some gender differences here, not surprisingly. Women are going to be more likely to say that uh, some of this uh, hunting should be banned. About a third say think that he did something illegal. And 41 percent say that doctors' actions were unethical but not illegal. I mean, it really got in there about talking about the dentist himself, not just the big game piece. I wonder what happened. I mean, so it's been a couple of months, and every so often they'll do these follow-ups with like, so-and-so was the subject of internet outrage for a week. Where are they now? Yeah. Well, I wonder where he is now. Yes. I mean, actually, I know somebody. I'm not. He did a doc. He was a part of internet outrage, and he did a documentary about his. Being part of the internet outrage. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, it's, and there's been some good stories, right, about the woman who just tweeted a crazy joke and then t- went and did an on, on, on oh, international yeah. flight. Her name was oh, Justine else. Sacco. She yes. tweeted like a joke that was kind of like, you know, it was a. It was off color. And then she didn't have Wi Fi for like 12 hours. And, and she then... landed in South Africa <laughs> and all of a sudden yeah. was like, but, I know, horrible. So, fun I fact know. I actually think she's now the PR person for either DraftKings or FanDuel, the, one of these daily fantasy football sites. Because oh. it was, you know, when that big scandal broke. I remember reading the coverage and it was like FanDuel spokeswoman Justine Sacco. And I was like, no way. She did get another job and now she's in another scandal. <laughs> but it's not her fault. I mean, but still, I just I know I knew her name. Hey, you know, so, she's mixing it up. Know, she's mixing it up. Good Donald Trump proves that there's no such thing as bad publicity, Margie. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so okay. what are this week's key findings? So whether you're feeling the post Thanksgiving exercise and diet burn or the Sanders burn, there are some numbers to help you find your tribe. Seems like dieting is down. Sanders may be up. Although we're feeling the burn by both Trump and Justin Bieber, <laughs> I guess our Twitter skills need some more work. Um, and millennials, maybe they're not as connected as we had all thought. They're just broke. <laughs> they're just broke. But that shouldn't stop you guys. You guys are connected from writing reviews, tweeting, or Facebooking a recommendation for the show with a link, or submitting our show to earbud.fm. And maybe we found another issue that might have cross-demo appeal, banning big game hunting. Candidates, perhaps take no. You can find us on Twitter at, at the pollsters. Margie's at, at Margie O'Meara, and I'm at K. Solta Sanderson. We're on Facebook, where we'll be posting throughout the week polls that we find that we think 
or interesting to our listeners. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, whichever podcatcher you choose. And don't forget the micro assignments that Margie threw out there. Make sure you're writing reviews if you like the show. Um, Tweet us feedback. We're trying to always make tweaks and improvements to the show based on what you think. Bye. Thanks. Have a good week.